Howdy guys, uh, good to see you, yay. Uh, yeah, we're continuing our epic journey with Paul. Uh, this is part of the year of biblical literacy and we're following Paul's missionary journeys uh, around the, the Mediterranean world and that's exciting. Also, nobody's seen the, tr- nobody's uh, had the trouble Paul has had, I think is probably the subtitle and uh, it's been so difficult for him. And we're looking at the letters he wrote along the way as well. And we're learning all about Christian mission. And so that's, that's really good. How's it going? How's the series going for you guys? Yeah, thumbs up over here, James. Yeah, cool. Um, today, Paul returns to Corinth, as Anita said. And the theme is, what does it mean to be a true ambassador or representative of Jesus? And we're all called uh, to be that, ambassadors of Jesus. So what does that really mean for us? Well, I want to get you in groups at the end as well, so be ready for that. Well, uh, I just wanted to tell the story so far. Um, So that next slide, Cam, and and then the next one. Um, We started in Corinth with Paul, Acts 18, and he plants a church there, and he also writes his two letters to the Thessalonian church. Then, next slide, he travels to Ephesus, which you can see on the map there. He plants a church. Next slide. Amazing things happen, and it's an incredible time for Paul. But then he has this really horrible, terrifying time in prison, facing death. And he also hears from the Corinthians, and it's not going well, and the church in Corinth is is terrible. And so he has this great anguish over what's happening back in Corinth. So it's a, it's a really, really, really hard... We looked at this in the last two weeks. A really hard time for Paul in the last year of his three-year visit in Ephesus. And while he was in Ephesus, he wrote uh, six letters. And he wrote two to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and then a letter we don't have. He calls it the painful letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And he sent this painful letter with Titus to the Corinthians. Paul actually went across back to Corinth very briefly. They told him to get lost. Uh, They told him they didn't like him. They didn't want him. And he came back to Ephesus. This is before he was put in prison in Ephesus. And so he writes then a a painful letter back to the Corinthians and sends, sends that letter with Titus back to the Corinthians. So we don't have that letter. It's lost to us. We assume that the Corinthians destroyed it or didn't want anyone else to see it. Um, also, he wrote from prison four letters, Philippians, Philemon, Ephesians and Colossians, and Stuart looked at those last week. Um, so, yeah, extraordinary journey so far. Okay, now we take up the story uh, when Paul finally gets out of prison in Ephesus and then travels eventually back to Corinth. It's frustrating. We don't know why he got out of prison. Did they drop the charges or did they find that he was not guilty? But he got out of jail after this terrible and shocking experience in jail. And he hints in Romans 16 that Priscilla and Aquila had got him out of jail. They'd risked their lives to come and talk to the magistrates to get him off the hook, to get him out of prison. And so he's terribly thankful to Priscilla and Aquila. Um, So we don't know exactly how that all worked, but he did get out of prison. And we know from the letters he wrote while in prison, uh, we've moved on a couple of slides there, Ken. Yeah, here we go. Um, 
uh, to the Colossians and Philemon, we know from those letters that he would have headed up the Lycus Valley to the city of Colossae to visit uh, Philemon. So that's inland from Ephesus. And this is Corinth. Uh, in that the hill in front is the mound of the ancient Corinth, which has not been excavated. But that's the situation of it. Amazing. And we can imagine uh, Philemon welcoming Paul so warmly. And Paul's just had this terrible time in Ephesus in prison. And Paul had written a very sensitive letter to Philemon, uh, urging Philemon to welcome home his runaway slave Onesimus and saying, treat Onesimus as your brother. And we assume that Onesimus, uh, the slave, and Philemon, his master, were reconciled. And they would have been such a great model of the power of the gospel in human relationships. That slave and master are reunited and treating each other as brother, even though Onesimus had run away. Um, And I'm sure that by being with Onesimus and Philemon, Paul would have been encouraged about his relationship with the Corinthian church that perhaps reconciliation was possible with them as well. The gospel is so powerful in people's lives. Paul was torn to shreds by the Corinthians and they told him if he ever wanted to go back to Corinth, he'd need new letters of recommendation from somebody to say that he had shaped up. Because they said some really hurtful things to Paul. They said he didn't speak very well and they said he didn't look very good. And there's a first century text that says Paul was bow-legged, that he had uh, a long hooked nose, that he had a monobrow and that he was very short and stooped. Not a very good looking man. And of course this mattered to the Corinthians who considered their city to be a sophisticated city. And if he wanted to be a church leader in their town... He better, he get, better get a better style, <laughs> they're, they're saying to Paul. You can read this in 2 Corinthians 10 as Paul reflects back on it. And they were, they were saying that they didn't like his frank manner and they didn't like that he always told it as it is and they didn't like that Paul didn't use flowery rhetoric. Now, flowery rhetoric is, you know, uh, oratory, eloquence, stylish ways of talking and the Greeks loved style they loved it but Paul didn't Paul didn't talk that way he was very direct in the way he talked and so they wanted him to shape up and this very much hurt Paul Uh, he loved them he was deeply concerned that they were turning away from him and from the gospel and he had wept with them he'd prayed with them he'd laughed with them he'd spent 18 months with them I mean, they were the apple of Paul's eye and yet now they really didn't like him and were putting him through the miller. So Paul had sent Titus to Corinth uh, in order to find out how things were going, you know, with that painful letter that that Titus had taken to the Corinthians. And Paul there is just trying to make sure that when he comes to Corinth again, it's not going to be ugly like it was last time. There aren't going to be terrible scenes of him being told to get lost and so that's why he sent Titus but Titus hasn't hasn't Paul hasn't seen Titus yet so having visited Colossae and Philemon 
Paul heads north on his way to Corinth to go around the north of the Aegean Sea, up through Troas, which is near Gallipoli, then Philippi and Thessalonica, all places that Paul had planted churches and supported and loved Paul. Uh, But, next slide, Paul is still troubled about the Corinthians and he says in 2 Corinthians he couldn't rest because he still hadn't found Titus. So he still didn't have news from Corinth. And he still didn't know what was going on. And it's interesting because he'd written to the Philippians just before this from prison, saying, have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. But when Paul uh, visits Philippi, he he doesn't have peace of mind. He's anxious. He's very anxious still about the Corinthians. And when he came to Troas, he couldn't get any quietness or peace in his spirit because he didn't find his brother Titus there. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 7 that we just read that when we arrived in Macedonia, that's where Philippi and Thessalonica are, we couldn't relax. We were troubled in every way. And there were battles outside and fears inside. And I love this combination that Paul knows that the ideal is that we don't have any anxiety about anything, but he's also realistic and honest and open with the Corinthians that you can only attain that sense of peace with a real spiritual struggle through prayer after wrestling with and facing down the battles outside and fears within. And he writes his second letter to the Corinthians at this time, This is uh, really his fourth letter. We don't have the first or the third. (laughs) So we call this 2 Corinthians. And what's amazing about this letter that he is now writing to the church in Corinth on his way to Corinth is how completely honest and open Paul is about himself. He's coming to Corinth saying, "Okay, you want my letters of recommendation. You want my new CV. Um so that you can know the sort of person I am. But instead of giving them other people's recommendations, he just, he just lays his soul bare before them. Warts and all. He tells them he's hurt. He tells them uh, his love for them. He tells them his pain. And he just he lays his life bare. It's quite extraordinary. This is the most vulnerable, the most hard-hitting letter that Paul ever wrote. And he does that instead of getting someone's letter of recommendation. Now, I think Paul is writing 2 Corinthians as he journeys towards Corinth. And it's the jerkiest of all Paul's letters. It seems to be in bits that don't fit together. And scholars say that maybe chapters 8 and 9 were a separate letter and maybe chapters 10 to 12 belong to another letter. I think it's more likely he's writing on the move. He's dictating the letter as he goes, maybe writing some himself. And then they have to uh, break camp and move on again. And then it's not two days until he gets back to writing the letter. So I think that kind of thing is happening. So he'll go on a sea voyage or go across country and then he'll keep working on his letter. And so it's in different stages. And that's why there's a change in tone and, and slight change in style as he goes. And I think this is part of the amazing power of 2 Corinthians. 
It really gives us a sense of the real Paul struggling, uh, his journey towards Corinth in stages, how he changes through that journey. It's absolutely amazing. Um, And there are differences in style between all of Paul's letters. But one of the biggest contrasts in style is between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, you know, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, has a lot of sunshine in it. And Paul is a bit of a tease. You know, he's teasing them. He's excited about all these ideas. He playfully uh, corrects them. And he gives them this wonderful poem about love, which is the text for all these weddings today, you know. Amazing. And Paul is on a roll. And Paul, that, that letter, that First Corinthians letter, just flows so smoothly. Um, but Second Corinthians, as we can see, even in the style of the Greek, it's clear that he's almost been crushed. It's clear that he's despaired of life itself. It's clear that he can get no rest because of the Corinthians. And you can feel it, especially in the start of 2 Corinthians, you can feel it in the torturous grammar and Greek that he uses. Um, So it's completely unlike any other letter. But then he meets Titus (laughs) in chapter 7 and it's a huge relief and the whole tone of the letter changes. And he says in chapter 7 that finally the God who comforts the afflicted who comforts the distressed, has comforted me through the arrival of Titus. And it's not just that Titus has come to me. It's the news Titus brought from you, Corinthians. You've now said that you love me. You're lamenting how you've treated me. You're extraordinarily excited that I'm coming to visit you. And oh, what a relief. God has been so good to me that you are now ready to accept me as your apostle. So Paul now, from chapter 7 on, thinks, hey, it's all going to be good. And there's still going to be tough things to face. But Paul knows that now, this time when he gets to Corinth, they won't reject him. (laughs) And the people who had been so rude have either left or repented. And so the rest of the letter has this sense of, okay, I'm coming to you now. I'm excited. Now we can be reconciled together. And he's overjoyed that they have repented. And the central theme of the letter is what it really means to be an apostle or an ambassador of Jesus. Because the Corinthians thought that he wasn't a true apostle or ambassador of Jesus. Clearly the Corinthians wanted Paul to be an apostle who conformed to worldly values a person of dignity and stature in the eyes of the Roman and Greek world. And they wanted a leader who they could be proud of in their Roman city. And although Corinth is in Greece, it's a Roman colony in Greece. And they were proud to be both Roman and Greek. And they wanted Paul to be somebody that they could be proud of. They're judging him by worldly standards. He didn't look good. He didn't speak good. He didn't have all of these credentials and achievements and honours that were given to him. No. And so they had been rejecting him. And in chapters 3 to 5, he begins to explain to them, that's not how to judge an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
That's not what an ambassador of Jesus looks like. No way. And in chapters 3 to 5, there's this great section, which is wonderful for church leaders and pastors, I've got to say, but also for all of us. Worth reading every week if you're a pastor. Paul gives a blueprint of what it means to be a representative of Jesus, sent by Jesus. Because it doesn't mean sailing through the world, everyone honouring you, being massively successful in a blaze of glory. It doesn't mean that at all. And he says, no, we have this treasure, he says, the treasure of the light, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, the Messiah. We have this treasure of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, who reveals the glory of God. We have this gospel in earthenware jars. You know, and wow, in these humble dwellings of our bodies and our lives, which are nothing, nothing impressive. We're just ordinary, nothing people. But yet we have the treasure of the gospel that we bring to people. And that is so the extraordinary quality of the power of the gospel may belong to God and not to us. And Paul is speaking, I think, to himself here, but he's certainly speaking to me, and I have to remind myself every day of this. The power is not with me. I'm nothing, absolutely nothing. The power is with God himself through my life, yes, but it's his power through me, not my power. And if we forget that for one moment, we fall flat on our faces. And so many churches have gone so horribly wrong because they've forgotten that very thing. And so he says, we're under all kinds of pressure, but not crushed. We're at a loss, but not at a wit's end, and so on. And he says, we always are being given over to death because of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in your mortal humanity. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And this is the extraordinary thing. Paul says ambassadors of Jesus Christ are people who carry about in themselves the crucifixion of Jesus. They suffer with Jesus. And they suffer indignities like Jesus did. And they're not super impressive, glamorous people. Jesus wasn't. He was nailed to a cross and humiliated and disgraced. And we who are ambassadors of Jesus carry around that same reality in our bodies. But then the result is that those we bring the gospel to can find life. They can find life. And that's an extraordinary calling that those of us who are pastors or gospel community leaders or gospel community members who are on mission to others, we need to realise that it's not a walk in the park. It's going to involve difficulty and suffering. And this would be overwhelmingly scary if if it were not for the trust that we have in the rescuing power of God not only for us, but for others. That while suffering is part of our calling, so is the resurrection power of Jesus 
renewing us day by day and bringing life to those who we're bringing the gospel to. And that experience of the resurrection power of Christ through our lives is absolutely wonderful. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is all about, as ambassadors of the gospel, we're part of a ministry of reconciliation. We are part of the plan of God accomplished through the death of Jesus on the cross to reconcile the world to God. We're part of that. But that includes that we will have difficulty. And then Paul decides to tease them a bit. Now there's a speech uh, in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. There's, it's after the murder of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony gets up to speak to the crowd. Brutus, one of the assassins, has just spoken to the crowd. And Brutus was speaking in a very blunt, very plain way. And Brutus said, this is why we had to kill Julius Caesar. He was a tyrant. He was ambitious. He had to die. End of Brutus's speech. <laughs> and then Mark Antony gets up and he speaks in some of the most eloquent, beautiful poetry that Shakespeare ever wrote. And halfway through, as he's charming the crowds, he says, I'm no orator like Brutus. <laughs> in other words, you've heard the real oratory from Brutus. I'm just telling you straight. But it's a tease because he's producing some of the finest oratory that Shakespeare ever put on anyone's lips. And Paul is doing the same kind of thing. He says, I know you love flowery language and showy rhetoric. I don't speak like that. I just, I just speak plainly. Okay, here we go. This is how we recommend ourselves as God's servants. You want letters of recommendation? Here's mine. With much patience, with sufferings, difficulties, hardships, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, going without food with purity, knowledge, great-heartedness, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by speaking the truth, by God's power, with weapons for God's faithful work in left and right hand alike, through glory and shame, through slander and praise, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet look, we are alive, as punished and yet killed, not killed, as sad yet always celebrating, as poor yet bringing riches to many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And I think the Corinthian hearers would be thinking, wow, he can really turn it on when he wants to. But he's turning it on in order to say that flowery rhetoric is not where it's at. And I'm sure Paul had a twinkle in his eye as he wrote this. And then he does the same towards the end of the letter when he finally goes for it and says, look, you've, you've had some people coming to you claiming to be super apostles. We don't know who these people were. You've had some people troubling you and upsetting you giving you the idea that what matters is the style of their presentation and their status, their high rank in the worldwide church, and they're looking down on me and people like me because we're suffering, because we're doing it tough, we're in prison all the time, we're being beaten and everything else, and they're looking down on us. Okay, well, I'm going to boast. 
They're boasting. I'm going to boast. And in this boast in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, what he does is he sends out the kind of boasting that Roman culture thrived on. You see it in those uh, great marble monuments that Emperor, the Emperor Augustus put up, where he lists all the things he's done, all the countries he's conquered, and on and on and on and on and on. Ordinary Romans did it also, um, and around the, the Roman world to this day, in museums and still on public buildings, you can see inscriptions that say that so-and-so uh, built this temple or built this aqueduct to bring water into the city, and the grateful population gave him honours as a result, and so on and so on, listing all the achievements, all the honours, all the titles. Again and again, they had manuals to help people know how to write these boasts on their inscriptions. <laughs> There's actually a book about how to do it and what was great to boast about. And in the island of Rhodes, they've discovered all these monuments with inscriptions on them, thousands and thousands of them. And what was happening was they were putting so many monuments up in the first century that uh, they had no more room for monuments. <laughs> they started repurposing monuments and just scrubbing out the name and inscription and putting a new name and a new person's inscription because everyone wanted a monument and an inscription of everything that they'd done. How's that? Well, and it happened in the army as well. Uh, and the greatest honour that you could get in the Roman army, as far as we know, was the special crown that was awarded if you were besieging a city and you put a ladder up the wall and you got over the wall first and attacked the city, uh, you know, with boiling you know, liquids coming down on you and people shooting arrows at you, but you got over the top and attacked. And because this was the most dangerous and stupid thing you could do in the whole world, they gave you the ultimate crown. If you were the first, it was called the crown of the wall and it actually looked like a wall with turrets, this crown. But because there'd be ladders going up all over around the city and everyone wanted to prove their worth and be the first... If you were over the wall first, you had to declare on oath later that you were the first in order to claim the crown afterwards. And this is what Paul does when he's boasting, in inverted commas, and when he's sending up all of this boasting. He says, I'm speaking nonsense, but I'm going to boast. But he boasts about all the wrong things. He boasts about everything they thought was embarrassing. And he says, OK, let me tell you, I may be a fool, but this is my CV. He says, comparing himself to the so-called super-apostles. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of the Messiah? I'm talking like a raving madman. I'm a better one. I've worked harder, been in prison more often, been beaten more times uh, than I can count. I've often been close to death. Five times I've been given the Jewish beating, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I was adrift in the sea for a night and a day. These were all the things that they thought only an unsavoury character would experience, right? He's rubbing their noses in it. And he goes on. I've been constantly travelling. Facing dangers from rivers, dangers from brigands, dangers from my own people, dangers from foreigners, dangers in the town, dangers in the countryside, dangers at sea, dangers from false believers. I've toiled and laboured. I've burnt the candle at both ends. I've been hungry and thirsty. 
I've often gone without food altogether. I've been cold and naked. And quite apart from all of that, I have this daily pressure on me, my care for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is offended without me burning with shame? And then comes the crunch. Here's the Roman military piece. If I must boast, I will boast of my weaknesses. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Here is the solemn oath, you see. In Damascus, King Aratus, the local ruler, was guarding the city of Damascus so that he could capture me. But I was let down in a basket through a window over the wall and I escaped his clutches. End of boasting. This is Paul saying, you want me to show that that I am a superior human being? Well, okay, I'll declare it on oath. When the going got tough, I was the first over the wall. But he wasn't attacking the city. He was running away. And by this stage, I'm sure that most of the Corinthians are smiling, if not laughing, by Paul, at Paul's witty send-up of their values. Um, and some would have been quite annoyed, I, I imagine, uh, because Paul has outflanked them with this amazing flight of rhetoric in order to say that showy rhetoric is not where it's at. And he's also saying that worldly fame and success and honour are not where it's at. And the dangers and the hardships he faced weren't the kind of thing that cultured or educated people would put up with. They would insist on a military escort or at least travelling with people who could protect them. And they would expect not to have to go hungry or be cold, or go without sleep, or work hard. That would be too demeaning. But this is exactly what Paul boasts in. Isn't Paul amazing? And Paul has won, not the crown of the wall, but the crown that really matters, the crown of Messiah Jesus. Jesus, his master, who was taken off in disgrace to die outside of the wall. And the point is, the gospel of the crucified and risen Jesus is burned like a branding into Paul's flesh and his life so that he is, unrecogni- he is recognisably sorry, Jesus' apostle. Right? He is marked out without a doubt through his sufferings and hardships and the fact that nonetheless the resurrection power of Jesus works through him. That proves that he is an ambassador of the crucified Messiah. See how that works? How can we ever doubt Paul when so clearly Jesus... Resurrection, Jesus' death, are written on Paul's own life. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm the real deal. I'm the apostle. I'm the representative. I'm the ambassador of Jesus. And this is what you ought to experience as well if you are true ambassadors of Jesus. And you can feel by the end of the letter, Paul's spirits are up again. He's, <laughs> he's being cheeky, isn't he? <laughs> By the end of the letter, is mock boasting. He's having fun. 
And he says, I'm on my way. And I know that it's going to be great to be with you again. Okay, and by the way, he says, make sure you have the money ready. That's chapters 9 and 10. Because they had promised to contribute to the fund that Paul was collecting from all the Gentile churches to give to the church in Jerusalem. And I'll talk more about that next week. And also, oh yes, and so he then arrives in Corinth. There three months. We don't know what happened, but I assume that, yeah, it was just a great time of celebration and reconciliation. And now, finally, the Corinthians know what true apostleship and is all about. And they see that he is the real deal. And also, this is when he wrote his letter to the Romans. So we'll look at this next week, too. His magnum opus came on the back of this whole painful experience with the Corinthians. Right, I want to get you in groups um, and COVID safe, if you want, don't mind, groups of four to six. And I do want you to discuss this. Um, so the questions are there. They're also on Facebook groups. You want to see them on your phone. And one of the slides, the last slide on that. And what does it mean that Paul boasts about all the wrong things? According to Paul, how do ministers of the gospel carry around in themselves the crucifixion of Jesus? In what ways are followers of Jesus part of God's plan to renew the world? And what would Paul say is the heart of what it means to be an apostle of Jesus?